Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Hey, everybody. Uh, You are not going to believe this. Finally, we have a great one. Neil Katyal is with me. Neil was the acting Solicitor General during the Obama administration. The Solicitor General is the one who argues before the Supreme Court on behalf of the administration. And Neil has argued more than 40 cases before the court, more than any other minority lawyer. Neil is of Indian extraction. He was extracted from an Indian. His mom and dad are both from the uh, subcontinent of, of India. Now, I know that a lot of folks who listen to this podcast also watch MSNBC. I know that because I'm the only former U.S. senator currently on tour tour, I tell a Steve Kornacki joke that everyone laughs at. Speaking of which, I'm, I'm back on tour, and uh, just as an example, I'll be in Hollywood, California at the Montalban Theater on September 30th, and you can check out if and when I'm coming to your area by going to alfranken.com. Anyway, there is overlap between my listeners and MSNBC viewers, and if you're one of them, you no doubt have been seeing a lot of Neil Katyal over the last few years, and particularly in the last number of months, uh, breaking down each and every new development in the various uh, cases involving Donald Trump and his, his motley crew. He, along with other brilliant prosecutors who are regulars on the network, like Joyce Vance, Andrew Weissman, uh, Barbara McQuaid. And what's so great about Neil and the others is that you really get to understand the significance of each new development and what they mean to the Justice Department or the Fulton County prosecutor in Georgia or the New York State Attorney General. So instead of going through that day's developments, which I get to hear every evening and which get dated very quickly. I wanted Neil to take an overview of the various crimes that Trump appears (laughs) to have committed and ask Neil to outline for us what Merrick Garland must be considering when he's deciding whether to prosecute this guy, what to prosecute him for, whether in the final analysis to charge a whole bunch of stuff or limit it to the easiest one to convict on. And I thought that would be of, of tremendous interest to, to all of you. Now, I've been traveling a bit, so I taped this discussion with Neil on Thursday, September 1st, before Judge Aileen Cannon's ruling on the issue of the special master and boy talk about a biased ruling. You know, a lot of Trump-appointed judges did the right thing after the 2020 election. Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and other Trump lawyers brought over 60 cases in an amazingly lame effort 
uh, to reverse the outcome of the election. And the Trump lawyers lost all but but one case. And let me tell you about the absolutely meaningless one that the Trump team prevailed on. It was in Pennsylvania on curing ballots. Now, what is curing ballots? Well, let's say you send in an absentee ballot and your signature doesn't match the signature you had on your original registration. Well, some people's handwriting changes. Say you're a 73-year-old man and you have a stroke. Well, your new signature doesn't match your original pre-stroke registration signature, so your ballot gets thrown out. That guy will be informed about that, and he can get his ballot cured. God damn it, I had a stroke. Well, sorry, Mr. Eggerberg, we, we didn't know. Oh, it's okay. I'm sorry I lost my temper. Oh, don't worry about it, sir. Your vote will count. Well, thank you. Okay, that's, that's happened in Minnesota. <laughs> Or, say, you're 18 years old, and when you registered, you scribbled your signature, and when you filled out your absentee ballot, you had your mom sign as a witness, and mom looks at your scribbled signature and says, what the hell is this? And the kid says, that's my signature, mom. She says, I taught you good penmanship. Now, you go back, tell them to void this ballot and get another one, and write your name legibly, or I won't witness it. And the kid does that, and then, of course, that signature doesn't match his registration signature, and his vote is turned down. Well, the registrar's office calls the kid and informs him that his vote didn't count, and so the kid went in and got the ballot cured, just like the guy with the stroke. That's what cured means. I ended up getting the old codgers and the kids' votes in 2008. I won that election by 312 votes. Well, the one case out of over 60 that the Trump team won was the court overturning the Democratic Secretary of State's extension of the period to have your vote cured from three days to six. It is very, very possible that the one decision that the Trump team won did not affect one vote, and Biden won Pennsylvania by over 80,000 votes. And a number of the other 60-plus cases that all went Biden's way were decided by Trump-appointed judges, so kudos to them. But the bizarre ruling by Judge Aileen Cannon, who was seated in the last weeks of the Trump administration, shut down the government's use of documents to continue its, its criminal inquiry into whether the former president violated the Espionage Act and a lot of other questions. This has presented Merrick Garland with some difficult choices on how to proceed. Should he appeal, for example, and risk going into a long-delayed process of the 11th Circuit in Atlanta, which is stacked with Trump judges and could slow down this interminably? Now, I recorded this introduction on Thursday, September 8th, the day before the Justice Department uh, responded to Judge Cannon. So I'm sorry, but uh, we're behind the curve on the whole Mar-a-Lago top secret documents thing here. But I think you'll get a lot out of this overview of the whole panoply of cases that are piling up against Trump and how Neil views Garland's options. And you can certainly keep up with Neil's latest takes on the day-to-day, ever-changing terrain by tuning in to MSNBC. Now, without further ado, Neil Katyal, a great one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. 
living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We met, uh, finally, I, I had never met you, uh, at the uh, Dead & Company show. It was amazing. Wasn't it? It was. Mayer is so good. He's grown into that so brilliantly. Yeah, and I have to say, like, so my last Dead show before this was actually Jerry Garcia's last show at Soldier Field back oh in my God. 1995. Oh, boy. And yep. in part, I just, you know, when they started resuming, I just didn't want to go and so on. Um, and then when John Mayer started playing, and I have to say, I just didn't know much about him besides, you know, your body is a wonderland and all that. And I was like, huh, this is like a weird choice. Is this going to work at all? And then, you know, I got to spend some time with our mutual friend, Mickey Hart, the drummer, who said some really great things about him. And so I made the trip up to New York to, to see him and Mayer blew me away. I mean, he has the same kind of just laid back rhythmic quality that mickey has and watching them together i just thought it was beautiful yeah and and he's made it his own which is i mean it, it, boy oh boy the uh, people who aren't deadheads are going to get so mad at this part so let's stop it <laughs> <laughs> but i, I wanted to talk about a couple things one you were solicitor uh acting solicitor general which is, of course, during the Obama administration. And, of course, that role is to argue uh, the administration's case in, in the Supreme Court. I've seen a number of times uh, you listed as the uh, member of a minority group that has argued more cases before the Supreme Court. And I asked you that night, does that count Jews? <laughs> <laughs> and did you look that up did you did you research it <laughs> uh, I, I have to say i didn't have time to to look into that question um well, so, i know you're um, arguing a lot of cases before exactly the court, yeah and maybe that's why you didn't have time now. 
Um, yes, but um, but you know I've argued forty five cases there um, so Jesus. far, um, and uh, I've got two or three more just this uh, in the next couple months, including on Katanji Jackson's first day. So I'm excited to be doing that, and then I've got a big death penalty case uh, in November. Okay, well you know you, you have people do research for you. <laughs> I'll, I'll find out my friend <laughs> you know um and uh you know it is interesting i and i married someone who's jewish um joanna rosen and uh at our engagement party my brother-in-law gave a toast about how hindus are jews and jews are hindus and we she, he outlined so many of the cultural similarities between the two groups it's actually really remarkable and even our wedding ceremonies we had back-to-back ceremonies in which the mandap which is how hindus get married was very very similar to the hookah down to the four pillars and things like that so we're always struck by the commonalities um, between the two traditions well indians are the new jews <laughs> I mean, uh, what were, what did your parents do? Your parents came from India, right? Yeah, my parents came from India. My mom was a pediatrician, and my dad was a chemical engineer. My mom's still alive. She's still alive. I rest my case, time. by the way. <laughs> a doctor and an engineer. Exactly. And by the way, they hated lawyers. I mean, my parents cried when I went to law school. Um, they just thought it was like the biggest waste of a career. <laughs> they wanted you to be an engineer or a doctor? Doctor. But when I married a doctor, I was cool. But up until then, real problem. Why can't you be a Tul Gawandi? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm doing them as if they're Jewish. <laughs> no, but um, it, it, I think it's true. It's it, there's so much, uh, so much in common, and um, I got a lot of ground to cover. I, I want to ask a question. I think all my listeners are 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 asking, which is, where is this going? If uh, you were Garland, what would you do? What are the crimes that he's committed that what charges can they bring against them what what will they do what will they bring against them if you're in garland's position what are you thinking about in terms of prosecution do you charge them with a lot of stuff do you charge them with one that's easiest convict on i'll just just go all right so first of all i think donald trump is facing kind of four different criminal investigations and it's it's important to just get them all on the table first Two are federal and two are state. One federal investigation is Trump's role in January 6th, the insurrection, the attack on the Capitol, and those kinds of crimes, conspiracy, seditious conspiracy, uh, obstruction of an official proceeding. Those are the main ones there. So that's one bucket of crimes. Kind of the worst thing you, you can do. Yeah, basically, <laughs> you know, yeah, it doesn't get much worse than that. Seditious conspiracy is kind of like the apex of the federal criminal code. Um, but yet we are having a serious conversation about whether Donald Trump uh, should be indicted for it. So what we can go through that in a little yes. bit. So that's one. Mm-hmm. The other is this cl- all the classified material uh, and national security material that he has at Mar-a-Lago and that he hid from the government and that he's refused to give back and lied about. Um, so those are both kind of uh, Espionage Act and kind of national security charges and also standard obstruction charges. Right. So those are at the federal level. <laughs> those are decided by Merrick Garland and Merrick Garland alone. 
Um, you know, there'll be staff recommendations and so on. But Garland is the decider as the attorney general. You then have two investigations going on in two different states. In Trump's, you know, former home state of New York, you have an investigation into accounting fraud um, in which the CFO of his criminal, uh, or I should say his his uh, organization, the Trump organization, <laughs> okay. which is facing a criminal indictment, his CFO has already pled guilty to some of these fraud violations. That's done at the New York state level. That will be decided by the Attorney General of New York, Tish James. You then have an investigation going on in Fulton County, Georgia, um, which involves vote manipulation. And that state investigation is being run by the local district attorney there, Fannie Willis, um, and she will be the ultimate decider on that. So that all is a long way of saying, you know, each one of these is separate, um, but they may have overlap. Um, it may be that um, something discovered in one investigation will matter to another. Indeed, we already know that the Georgia, Georgia. and New York prosecutors have started getting information and working with Congress and the January 6th committee. So there is, um, you know, some overlap. It may be that uh, when the search was executed at Mar-a-Lago, other documents were found relevant to these other investigations. I don't know. We'll, we'll time will tell. In terms of the Georgia investigation, I, I, I've always thought that the Raffensperger tape is a crime. It's obviously a crime. All I need to find 11,780 votes. And later he says, if you don't, basically, if you don't do this, you can be in a lot of trouble, <laughs> which is a threat. And it's, on, and it's on friggin' tape. I mean, Correct. it's on tape. And, <laughs> and so to me, Lordy, there are tapes, Lordy. <laughs> yes. I mean, exactly. I, you know, uh, in, in uh, Jerry Maguire, the line is, you had me at hello. You had me at the Raffensperger tape. This is a crime, as far as I'm concerned. So, and, and that is a federal crime. I know she's doing it. She's doing the investigation. But that's, that's a, it's a federal election, right? That's a crime. It's a federal crime. It's federal and state both. Uh, yes. and, uh, and absolutely, it may be that the, justice, the federal Justice Department is also investigating that. But I completely agree with you about the substance of the tape. Indeed, within six hours of it being released back in January of 2021, um, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying this is going to lead to Trump's impeachment. Um, and, you know, at that point, everyone's like, oh, you're ridiculous, blah, 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 go away. And, and that's before, off. of course, the, the, the uh, riot. Before it was the, before the riot. Yeah, it was like it, it was two days before or a day before. Yeah, what, I think what, three days. If I, okay. I think it's January third, yeah, versus January sixth. Okay, you know? yeah. So, um, but I think you're absolutely right to say that is a clear cut crime. You've got it on tape. You've got both. You know, in criminal law, you need two things: you need an actus reus, a bad criminal act, and you need a mens rea, a criminal intent, a bad intent. And that tape reveals both of them. Trump is threatening this person unless he finds him the votes. And he's doing it in the most corrupt way possible. Go find me these votes. I mean, you know, I grew up in Chicago. I, you know, I've never heard of even that kind of vote fraud. My favorite thing about it is that he expected Raffensperger to do this, I think. And so can you imagine what that, that press conference would have looked like? Well, but, you know, it's not surprising, you know, right, that, that he expected that because so many he hires and works with so many lackeys who roll over 
and, you know, and do his bidding, even when it's a betrayal of the Constitution of the United States and our most fundamental precepts of democracy, you know, Trump's not done. He's been able to get away with this time and again. But can you imagine what that press conference would have looked like? Raffensperger going, uh, <clears throat> I'm Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, and we've had a change uh, in the tally <laughs> and the uh, new winner in the presidential election here in Georgia is uh, Donald Trump by one vote. I mean, <laughs> that, that's what Trump thought he'd do. You know, okay, he'll do that. Um, so uh, if you're in Garland's position, what are you thinking about in terms of prosecution? Do you, do you charge him with a lot of stuff? you charge him one of with the easiest to convict on? Well, well Garland is a far more moderate, uh, and I, I consider myself a, you know, a centrist, but Garland is really as moderate as it gets. This is the guy who I'm sure has zero interest in being the first attorney general of the United States to indict a former president of the United States. It's so anathema to the way he thinks. But mm -hmm. Trump's behavior, both in committing the crimes and lying about it and obstructing it afterwards, in my mind, make it inevitable that Garland is going to ultimately bring a criminal indictment against Donald Trump. The question is just how big or small it will be, but I don't see a way at this point not to. So just starting with, and I think Garland will start with, the classified and national security information investigation from Mar-a-Lago. So at this point, we know several things. We know that Donald Trump stole these government documents. We know he lied about it. We know he hid the documents and then he kept them hidden. That uh, the archives asked for them back. And they said they turned some back, but refused to turn them all back. The lawyer then certified for Trump that they had turned over everything. And that was in response to a grand jury subpoena saying, turn over all the documents that bear the markings classified. So the lawyer said, okay, here are some documents and I certify that's it. And then the Justice Department got information, I suspect from a confidential witness on the inside, that there were more classified documents so they then went to a magistrate judge, a federal judge, and said, authorize this search. We have probable cause. That means we think it's more likely than not that crimes were committed in Mar-a-Lago and that there's evidence there. The judge signs that warrant. They execute it. And lo and behold, they find the goods. They find 184 more classified documents. So how does the Justice Department really look the other way at this point? It'd be one thing if... Trump said right away, I'm so sorry, this was a mistake, you know, I was busy planning a coup, I didn't have time to pack up the office properly, you know, whatever. His lawyer would say, don't, do not say that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, no, whatever. No. But instead, he thumbed his nose at law enforcement at every turn, both before and after the requests um, by, by the grand jury. And so... You know, the Justice Department, when you're evaluating this stuff, and I've sat in on those meetings with the prosecutors, you're sitting there trying to apply the rule book from the past. And probably the most important thing in that rule book is, has this target been contrite? Have they been forthcoming ever since that we started talking to them? That's a hugely important thing in de deciding whether to prosecute. What has this guy done? He has lied 
refused, obstructed, kept calling him my documents, accused the FBI of planting these documents at one point, now claiming he's, they planted a picture or, you know, staged a photo and stuff like that. This is the it's worst amazing. way. Yeah, this stupid. is the worst way for a criminal defendant <laughs> to behave facing a serious investigation, and it is running right into the department's general view, which is you're gonna, if you're going to commit crimes, one thing, but if you're going to lie about it afterwards, Tuss, you're going to jail. Now it seems to me that I mean, yes, this is kind of open and shut. Everything you described, every step of that was a crime. Every step of it, everything, and different crimes. So it's not yes. just the classified information or the national security information he retained. It's that he lied to the authorities about it. I mean, there's a separate charge here called obstruction of a grand jury proceeding in Section 412, and it's just simply if the grand jury asks for something and you say you gave it to him and you didn't. That's a crime just by itself. And they asked here not just for classified documents, but any documents that are marked that way, whether they're truly classified or not. So his whole kind of bogus, crazy theory that he had some sort of standing order to declassify, I don't know, covert operations and everything whenever he brought them to Mar-a-Lago, this is an insane theory. Um, but even if that's true, it's not going to get him out of these charges. We're going to take a break for a moment. We'll be right back. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. The thing to me is, is that the most serious crime he committed was January 6th, was the try and subvert a democratic election, lying about who won and, and fomenting a uh, you know a riot uh, in the Capitol, and that to me, and we've had months of of this. The January sixth committee hearings have exceeded my expectations. I I don't see how you don't do that. You don't charge in that, and I, I wonder what you need to prove there, because it's a very 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 clear picture cumulatively. Yeah. And I, again, I think you had, you had him at, hello, you had him at Raffensburg. 
what's going on in your mind about that? Yeah, so it's obviously not the kind of simple case that the classified documents, national security information cases, that's just so easy that my first year law students could bring that prosecution and win it, I think. The one about January 6th, I think, is just more complicated. It's more serious. And these crimes are, as we were talking about a moment ago, kind of that, you know, the height of the U.S. criminal code. And there's no doubt in my mind, after sitting through and watching the January 6th hearings, that Trump is guilty of them. And I certainly think it would be not difficult at all to convict him of the charges related to January 6th. It's just that it's a more complicated narrative. Now, federal prosecutors all the time bring cases with complicated narratives. Almost every white collar crime case is going to have these features, making it hard, you know, for it to reduce to a simple soundbite. But ultimately, I think, again, Garland didn't start out wanting to bring a January 6th indictment against the president. I, I suspect he did against you know, anyone who invaded the Capitol um, or who contributed to that invasion of the Capitol in some financial way or some, you know, obvious overt way. But I, I think that the, this is where the January 6th committee's work was so important because what they did, they did two things. They were able to marshal a ton of evidence that we didn't know. I mean, we had a whole impeachment proceeding with none of the people that you know, um, Cassidy Hutchinson and, you know, people like that. None of those people showed up in the impeachment proceeding, but they all showed up in the January 6th hearings investigation. So we filled out a ton of facts that we didn't know before. So that's one thing about it. And the other is they did it in a way that made it intelligible, even though it's complicated, for the American public to understand. So to the extent Garland was worried hey, this is a case that doesn't reduce to sound bites or whatever. What the beauty of the January 6th committee did in laying this out so, with such storytelling was to make it intelligible for the American public and start to acculturate them to the idea that, unfortunately, our former president is a serious, serious federal felon. To kind of break it down, you know, I think there are three charges that the government will be looking at. And these are the three charges that were mentioned um, by the January 6th committee in a filing in federal court in California. And a federal district court judge, a very respected judge, Judge Carter, said there was probable cause to believe that Donald Trump committed at least two of these crimes. So one is called obstruction of an official government proceeding. It's Section 1512. And for the prosecutors, for Garland to win, they have to convince a jury that Donald Trump first obstructed or attempted to obstruct, second, a official proceeding, and third, that he did so corruptly. Okay, so the official proceeding here is easy. That's the counting of the votes on January 6th. That's about as official and solemn a proceeding as the Congress of the United States ever gets into. There's no dispute about that. The question is, did he obstruct that or attempt to obstruct it? So was he encouraging people to march on the Capitol and stop the count? The January 6th committee provided so much evidence that that's exactly what he was doing. And then the question, criminal intent, did he do so corruptly? And this is, again, where I think that the committee marshaled so much evidence 
I mean, he was told repeatedly by everyone down to his daughter that he lost the election. I mean, Bill Barr said he lost the election and told him so. And what did he do when he found out that there were, you know, when there were weapons on January 6th? He said, remove the magnometers, remove the, the, the metal detectors. Let right. them They're in. not here to harm me. Yeah, not here oh, to well, harm who me. Who are they there exactly. to harm? Exactly. Exactly. And then for three over three hours, right, what is 181 minutes, he sat on his hands and did zilch, nothing. Didn't call the military, didn't call the National Guard, didn't call the Just Environment, didn't call Homeland Security. The Capitol is literally being invaded and, and none of this, you know, he does nothing. Instead, it took Mike Pence to actually do something. Well, he didn't he didn't put out a video telling them to go home. Yeah, later he, he eventually got to that, but even well, that there, was three, the committee was so beautiful with those outtakes. I mean, you know, showing this guy still couldn't admit that he had lost the election at that point. But the fact that it took three hours and he's watching this violence, yeah, and that is dispositive. And and I love the Cipollone uh, tape where it was did you uh, think the president should like do the, tell people to leave? Yes. Did so and so? Yes. Did so and so? Yes. Did so and so? Yes. And it was like everybody there right. was saying, "Jesus Christ, man!" Yeah, people are dying. Uh, people yeah. are, and 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 going to die. One hundred percent, total crook. I mean, and um, if nothing else, just the most incompetent act a president of the United States has engaged in in our lifetimes, sitting there and doing nothing while there's bloodshed. And an armed attack on our capital for the first time since the war of 1812. Well, he was hoping he was hoping that the Secret Service would take him to Andrews Air Force Base and fly him to Yemen. But the vice president, <laughs> you know, I mean, he, the vice president, for a reason, wouldn't get in that car. Right. Because he knew he didn't trust the driver. This would be the first time I think I've said that that vice president engaged in a smart act, but maybe he did. <laughs> yeah, let me see. That was smart. That was smart. I'm not sure it was the first time, but I can't right, recall. I can't recall. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I can't disprove that. I wish I, I could. Something, something, somewhere, something. Anyway, um, uh, I'll, I'll try to research that. And uh, put it in the in the opening, in the monologue. Okay, so uh, that that's one. <laughs> yeah, so that's one charge. The second charge is conspiracy to defraud the United States, and the idea there would be, you know, everyone voted. The U.S. government spent a lot of money on that election, a lot of resources and the like, and you've got a person who's trying to orchestrate an attempt to claim he won. Um, and to throw out that lawful count. And one of the beautiful things about conspiracy charges, it goes all the way back to England several centuries ago, is that by design, the plot doesn't actually need to succeed. It's all about the agreement to do something illegal. It's not about actually pulling it off. So prosecutors don't need to wait, for example, until a bomb goes off or here until the election results are wrongfully thrown out before bringing charges. And so in order to prove that, they're going to have to show that Donald Trump agreed with someone else to try and throw out the election. And here, the relevant targets, John Eastman, Trump's lawyer, is one. Rudy Giuliani 
is another, and Mark Meadows is a third. And we know that the government is looking at all three of them for possible criminal activity with respect to January 6th. And one thing about the conspiracy doctrine, and you know, I wrote a whole article about this in the Yale Law Journal, like a 100-page scholarly article about a decade ago, is about the idea that the, the doctrine is very flexible in order to give prosecutors the ability to flip defendants. So the whole name of the game with conspiracy charges, because it does take two to have a conspiracy, two to tango, is that you try as the prosecutor to get one of them to turn on the other in a prisoner's yep. dilemma-like situation. Mm-hmm. Now here, you know, Eastman, Giuliani, Meadows, these are all guys who owe everything at this point to Trump. I mean, you know, they've had careers in the past, but at this point, they're kind of all in. But they are looking at serious jail time. And so if you're Garland and you're trying to decide, do I bring a conspiracy charge against Donald Trump? One key question is going to be, have I been able to flip these other people to get them to testify against Trump? And if you can, if you can get their former lawyer involved in this, um, I don't know what we call Rudy Giuliani, kind of a Four Seasons conference planner slash lawyer. I don't know. He's now kind of a former lawyer. At least he can't. He's been disbarred, hasn't he? I think at least provisionally, I think okay. he can't act. Yeah. So, but at the time, obviously, he was acting something as something of a lawyer. But if you get those people to flip, or if you get the president's chief of staff to flip, that prosecution looks a lot easier than it would otherwise. That's the second bucket. And then the third one, and the, the biggie, is what's called seditious conspiracy. And as I said, it is one of the most serious charges in the federal code, but it's also, I think, actually the hardest one to bring against Trump. And that's because it requires prosecutors to prove that two or more people agreed to use force to delay the execution of the law or to overthrow the government. I think Trump's defense here, if he can get a lawyer to actually work for him, but if he can, I think that lawyer would say, you know, Trump wanted to delay, maybe he did want to delay certification of the election, but he never formally agreed to use force with someone else. And it's going to be hard to prove otherwise unless you can flip Eastman or Giuliani or someone like that. Let me ask you about this, because uh, Hutchinson uh, testified (laughs) to this uh, at at the Willard where there was a uh, war room. And that Meadows very badly wanted to get there, but couldn't finally dialed in. And I believe the people that were there were like Roger Stone and Steve Bannon. And was Mike Flynn there? Right. No, it is. It's the whole Star Wars bar scene. Right. And uh, Stone was uh, in contact with both the Oath Keepers and who have been charged with seditious conspiracy. And uh, with the Proud Boys, who left the rally early <laughs> to start it, right? And it seems to me the one half of a session in the hearings that I was very disappointed in was when they brought in the former spokesman for the Oath Keepers and the, the guy who was duped in the, you know, and mm-hmm. whose life was ruined. I was hoping that we would find some connection between the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and Roger Stone or that war room. 
Yeah. So I agree with you that I think ultimately the evidence looks like it wouldn't shock me at all if the evidence shows that the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, who have already been charged with seditious conspiracy, that they were working with other people high up in Trump's orbit, whether it's Roger Stone or someone else. So they could flip. They could flip. But what I'm saying is in the absence of that, I think Trump's going to have been careful not to ever use the word force or, or synonyms of force directly. You know, he acts very much like a Bob boss in this way. And you read in, and this is in Michael Cohen's book, you know, for chapter after chapter, if you work for him, you're supposed to infer exactly what he wants and he won't directly say it. It'd be a shame. Exactly. If, uh, you know, exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, if Ukraine would have to change its uh, name back to the Ukraine. You hear what I'm saying? <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Right. So the, and while we all know and we can, you know, as commentators um, and so on, have a conclusion in order to be, you know, a criminal trial requires, you know, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And every person on that jury has to convict. You can't afford a single person, not to, requires a unanimous verdict. And so when you have things like this, even if it's common sense and we can infer certain things, that's generally not enough for a prosecution. So, you know, we don't know all the things that the Justice Department has, but I'm just trying to say that, you know, that as they evaluate what's in their, what's in their evidentiary record, I think seditious conspiracy is going to be the hardest one for them to actually charge against Donald Trump. Okay, so let me ask you this, though. Um, If you're prosecuting someone, can't you do multiple charges, right? And the jury can say, oh, on, you know, seditious conspiracy, not guilty. Sure, absolutely. You've always, as a prosecutor, have an ethical duty to make sure that, you know, that you can meet the standard of proof. And obviously, you don't have to have a certainty about it, but you do need to satisfy, you know, a standard in legal ethics that, you know, you can't just bring any unsupported charge against anyone. But obviously here, you know, I don't think there's any risk of anything like that. But still, sometimes you actually just bring a more streamlined case because you want it to be simple and clear for the jury. You know, sometimes if you overplay your hand, it can rebound and hurt the easier, the low-hanging fruit. Right. Now, one question, you know, that I think is implicit in what you're saying, asking is, okay, there are these two totally separate buckets here. There's January 6th and there's Mar-a-Lago in the documents there. Is that one prosecution or is it two? And I think it's two totally separate prosecutions Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, just because they're really pretty different from one another. And indeed, venue may be different from one another because it may be that the Mar-a-Lago indictment happens in Florida. It doesn't have to. It seems like that one is so cut and dried, but, you know. Yeah, it is. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I'm glad to see Merrick Garland um, acting appropriately here and with some toughness and resolve. I, I don't think that there is a way that he can look past this. Trump made one mistake. He pissed Merrick Garland off. <laughs> <laughs> he made just one mistake. My God. Uh, yeah, this is astonishing. Well, well I do want to say something about it, just because I've worked with Garland over the years of argued cases before him and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you piss Garland off or not, it's not going to matter one bit to how Garland's going to approach this. 
he is going to be worried about, you know, any defendant that lies to his folks. And, you know, that's standard department policy to think through that when you're thinking about a criminal indictment. But I have no doubt in my mind that Garland is going to sit there and try him, take himself out of the equation. And no human being can do that 100%. But I have more faith that he would do it than virtually anyone in this town. Yeah, uh, that's what I understand about him and why when he wasn't taken up for the court, it was, you know, the Biden rule. Ah, don't get me started on that. Uh, uh, not taking him up for the court because he was he's like the perfect Supreme Court justice, you know. Yeah. And they didn't want to hear him because everyone would have seen that. Right. So 100%. I mean, you know, this is a, you know, Senator Orrin Hatch, a very prominent Republican who chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee said, you know, I was can never say a bad word about Merrick Garland. Um, what, what, what's next? What do we, uh, I guess the, the January 6th, uh, committee is, is going to resume, right? Yeah, so we're expecting some hearings, uh, you know, probably later this month or next month. Um, You know, I think uh, that they have a fair amount of uh, loose threads that they want to wrap up um, on that committee. Um, I think prosecutors now are studying that record already to decide whether to bring an indictment. So that's what's going on here in D.C. And then in the field in Mar-a-Lago, the U.S. Attorney's Office in consultation with Justice Department officials in Washington uh, and the intelligence community are trying to figure out how harmful what Trump did is and, uh, you know, whether an indictment should be brought. There is a general Justice Department policy that you don't indict uh, 60 days before an election. Um, That's really about when someone's running. Donald Trump is not running, much Mm -hmm. as he acts sometimes like he is. So I don't think the policy formally prevents the department from doing anything, you know, even in October. But I suspect that Garland will wait until after November if he doesn't move very quickly. And, you know, I don't see any reason why he would move, you know, this week. Doesn't seem to. Yeah, so there's no reason. Get your ducks in a row. Make sure that everything is right. Triple check everything before you do something like this. But, you know, right now, if I had to predict, I think we are looking at an indictment of Donald Trump. Uh, for the Mar-a-Lago classified and national security documents and the accompanying obstruction of justice in November. It's kind of interesting because Trump, there was suggested that he had a strategy of announcing that he was running so that he was a candidate, (laughs) so he could say that any prosecution was political. But now you see Republicans going, don't. (laughs) Right, and also it's so interesting that the RNC... The RNC is refusing to fund his defense at Mar-a-Lago. They're paying for his January 6th stuff, but they won't even pay for what he's doing at Mar-a-Lago because I think they've realized this is, you know, so atrocious and so beyond the pale. But, but then again, they called uh, the January 6th uh, incursion uh, legitimate political Legitimate political discourse. discourse. <laughs> yes, exactly. Holy crap. Well, um, this, is, this is a good overview for, for my listeners. I just appreciate uh, being able to uh, tune in to see you on MSNBC almost every night and uh, get the latest update 
on on each thing that's breaking but i really really appreciate this overview and i think um my my uh, listeners will as well well thank you and i appreciate both your service to the government your service to our humanity and keeping us sane um and for this terrific podcast so it's been a privilege to be on with you did you hear that everybody okay (laughs) well thanks a lot thank you my friend well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.